body until something goes wrong, right? Yeah, when fit and healthy, we don't really ask questions, do we, about our bodies or what is going on. It's not until trouble comes do questions then ensue. We begin to feel troubled about, if we had a medical injury, what that might mean next for us. What remedies we might need to start considering to aid our recovery. Or what changes we need to make in our lifestyles to avoid future injuries and to warn off potential medical diagnosis. We start to think the older we get with sobriety, the very fragility of our lives, don't we? The more frequent an ailment, the more aware we are of our brittleness. You see, it's only when we're troubled about something do we start to ask questions. Jesus says in verse 1 to Thomas, Don't let your heart be troubled, because you believe in God, believe also in me. This happens just after the preceding text where we see Judas's betrayal amongst the team. We also see the future prediction of Peter's denial of Jesus. And this would have been a confusing time for the disciples. We've all been in part of a close, tight-knit team where everything is working so well. Suddenly, when that gets put into question, you start to doubt and troubling, troubled moments start to set in. Suddenly, a team which felt previously tight now felt loose for the disciples, perhaps even fragile or precarious. But Jesus responds, don't be troubled, because you believe in God also, believe in me. Jesus calls the disciples out of their confusions and worries not to act differently, but to believe differently. By remembering whom they believe in. By focusing on who they believe in, believe in me, Jesus says, you can be alleviated from your troubles. Even, comma, particularly when you don't understand them. If life feels loose, fragile, or precarious this morning, Jesus says, believe in me. I can overcome your troubles. And let's be honest, whether it is a personal trouble or a community trouble, the truth is whether you are here this morning as a Christian or you're just visiting, you are aware of the injury of our nation. Perhaps you're here this morning, maybe you once had a tight relationship with somebody that you loved and now that feels really estranged. Perhaps you're at the dinner table and once it was bustling with children and people and you used to eat together often with your family and now you rarely eat together and that's troubling. Perhaps you're in a job that once felt so secure but unexpected changes now makes it feel very uncertain. Think more from a community perspective. If you bank with Metro Bank, you're probably feeling troubled this week as they're asking for a 600 million pounds of capital to be pumped in to help them. Perhaps you're troubled by our beautiful warm weather in October and all of the articles that are written about climate change. Perhaps you're even more troubled about HS2 and the train line that's stopping and starting and starting and stopping and whatever it's doing next. 
Perhaps you're worried about the crime rate or something else, the, kid, the school your kids are going to go to. The truth is, regardless of your belief this morning, whatever your belief is, if you sit down and think about it, whether on a personal level or on a corporate level, we know that our country is injured, right? We have an injury. So why don't we ask more questions? Now, we have a problem Jesus points also to a solution. In verse 2 through 4, it says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, disciples, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. You see, what Jesus says to Thomas here is something remarkable. You're in this place of trouble. What does he do? He points him to the future, to a, a holistic vision of something that would have captivated the senses, the feelings, and the imagination. Thomas, there is a room prepared for you. This profoundly personal metaphor would have captivated the entirety of the person hearing it, and I trust it does so for us this morning. It's a little bit like this, like a parent dropping a child off at university at the start of term. They reassure them that I'm going to come back and pick you up. Don't worry, the room that you have been sleeping in will still be prepared for you during the semester and for when you come home. Now, what loving parent would promise that to their child and not deliver on that promise? Now, it's true. Most earthly parents will feel tempted to turn the room into whatever they might want to whilst the child is away. A gym, a train collection, a craft room, so on and so forth. But actually, once the loving parent stops to think about it, would they do that to their child? You see, Jesus, full of truth, would only tell us about a place he is preparing for Thomas, the disciples, and for us, should he be able to deliver and fulfill that promise. You see, when a child knows the security and peace and a sense of home to come, can they only face the trials of the semester that they are in? No matter how tough it gets, how the friendship groups might unravel, how gossip might unfold, knowing that you've got a home to go to will help you to get through those trials. In John 1, John 3, it says, What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. You might be a grandparent in the room this morning. The great thing is, regardless of your age, regardless of your life experiences, you are a child of God. All of us are like students away from our ultimate home for a time and place, learning and figuring out so much whilst away from our ultimate home. And our Father will one day return and collect us when the end of our life term comes to call. He will lead us to a room. It will be eternally prepared. But then that stimulates a question, doesn't it? Well, how do I get there? <laughs> oh, that sounds great. I mean, that sounds amazing. 
That's like someone booking you in at the Connaught Hotel and you don't know how to drive or use a sat-nav. You want to know how to get there because you've heard about the Connaught Hotel or the Dorchester Hotel in London. You see, Thomas is like a student in some aspect here where he gets dropped off, but he hears, he's in the back seat of the car and he hears the parents conversing at the beginning and he hears the, the conversation going on and the mum says to the dad, they, he hears, it sounds like they're going to be moving house this year. And Thomas starts to panic. He goes, but, 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 but where's the house going to be and, and how can I get there? What's going to happen? And suddenly, he's about to get dropped off at university, and he feels so insecure because home is starting to crush. Or the idea of home is so uncertain. Thomas, here's the initial promise here in verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. But he decides to pick up the responsibility himself by saying, Lord, I don't know where you're going. How can I know the way? In other words, how can I get there? How can I do it? It's almost like Thomas is saying, Lord, you know, or we would say, sorry, um, Thomas is saying, Jesus, would you point me to the article that says five steps to get back to the prepared room? Or maybe better still, Jesus, would you somehow just arrange the algorithms of Netflix, Now TV, Apple TV, Prime, and whatever subscription you have in addition to that, and probably spending lots of money each month on, would you arrange the algorithms for the next mini-series to be something like where Jesus is going and how I can get there? Please, because I need to know how I can do it so I can follow. In other words, show me what I should do to achieve my salvation. How can I figure this out? Truth is, church, you don't figure it out. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, we're going to go on to that in a second, but I think it's really important here just to stop and pause. Troubles in life come to all of us. There is no one looking at me right now that has not had a trouble in their life. Trouble comes to us even if we're not Christians. So we've got a basis from which to start upon. Jesus points us to a truth of where we're going to go. A room prepared. But that then leaves this massive gap in the middle, doesn't it? How? When? Where? Now that was the introduction. Don't worry, the main points are not as long as that. But I wanted to tee up, hopefully, to get us to think. Church, we don't ask enough questions. And because we don't ask enough questions, we don't get enough answers. What I want us to ask this morning was, is how? How do we do that? How do we get there? Let's be like Thomas. And if you're a non-Christian this morning, I want you to ask just as much. Because our culture is so anesthetized by being busy all the time that we don't stop for a moment just to think and ask. What a precious gift we have this morning to do that. So the main body is going to be unpacking this. Well, there's a problem, we have a destination, but how do we get there? Well, we get there by following Jesus' words. Verses 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him 
and you have seen him. Thomas, I'm your ticket home at the end of semester. Thomas, I'm also your driver. I'm the vehicle and I am the fuel. I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. If you want to get to the Father, you've got to get through me. And you get it through me. You don't have to worry about the house's destination, the room's location. Because I'm personally going to pick you up. I'm personally going to take you home. And I am personally going to see you through the door. All you need to do, Thomas, is do something that is the hardest thing for you to do. And that's to believe. Do you believe? Do you believe that I am the way? Hebrews 12 verses 1 tells this, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, before Jesus, there was no way to the Father. That part in Hebrews, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, is the imagery of someone going ahead of us through a thick rainforest of hedges and shrubs, immovable trees and greenery, where there is no way through. And someone turns up Jesus with a divine machete, you know, the sort of marvel machete you would have that could glow in the dark. And he just starts hacking his way through the jungle as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. As he takes down the rainforest of sin, the rainforest of wrongdoing, the rainforest of destructive thoughts, unintentional, intentional, sins of omission, sins of commission, all the thoughts we've done wrong, all the things that we've said that have hurt others. And through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he's picking up this divine machete and he is blasting a way through, one blow at a time. And he is making a way back to the Father. I am the way. I am the path to the Father. I have blown a hole through the rainforest, the thicket of sin, so that you can come and be with me. Now listen, I'm not asking you this morning to, to, if you're a non-Christian, I'm not asking you this morning to start on a journey to, to Christ. I'm asking you to change the journey that you're currently on or the pathway that you're currently on and to change it towards Christ. What I'm saying is we're all on a journey. You know, just look this week at uh, Abercrombie & Fitch, you know, the, the holding company for Hollister Clothing. If you're probably like me and over 30, it's a trendy clothing wear that you're not aware of. But it's big amongst the trendy and young, right? Mike Jeffries, with a bottomless pit of cash, has macheted his way to hedonism to realize his darkest fantasies and is now being investigated for human trafficking to meet his sexual needs. Because when you have a bottomless pit of cash and no end of you know, personal desires and pleasures, you're macheting your way to anything that you like. What about the endless scores of people that want a way or that are on the path towards just earthly success? 
You know, this is like climbing a mountain. And you look up and you see a ledge and you go, from that ledge, the view will be beautiful. And when I get there, I know I'm not going to want to see the view from another angle at all. And then you get to the ledge and you look up and go, that actually, now that next ledge is going to be beautiful. When I get to that ledge, I'm not going to want to. And you're so consumed by looking up that you never stop in your life to look down and realize that you've passed hundreds of ledges, never satisfied. You're like uh, what Jim Carrey said, that the quote I've taken from the Alpha Course, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and have everything that they ever dreamed of so that they know that it's not the answer. Or perhaps something more not so obvious. Perhaps people are macheting away to freedom. In the BBC this week, migrants trying to reach the UK courageously. I mean, it's phenomenal. Crossing the Alps on foot to reach England because they want to come to England for a better life. But for us who live in England, after spending much time here, no doubt... They will arrive at a place with greater security, prosperity, and a better life because of better opportunities. They will soon learn that England is not quite the promised land that they are hoping for, right? The truth is, we're all injured, and we're all trying to find a way. We're all hopeful for a final destination that will take away our earthly pains our dissatisfactions and sorrows. But what if there was a way to a room, a room in a house where the door opened and someone greeted you with warmth and the one who greeted you had a smile on their face, they had affection in their eyes. They greeted you in such a way that when the door was opened, suddenly something happened inside unexpectedly where you felt approved of. Secure, safe, forgiven, loved. That when this person touched you, suddenly everything else just disappeared and evaporated because you were so captivated by the one who just opened the door for you. You want to make a way to an eternal room? Jesus is the way. Jesus is also the truth. I always remember when Raheem Sterling left Manchester City to join Chelsea. He says this, and I quote, Manchester City, I disagree with this first point, by the way. Manchester City is a fantastic club. It's a club that wins lots of trophies. It's a club that has helped my development massively in the past couple of years. But there comes a time when you've got to think about yourself. What's best for yourself? and what you want for the future. That's the sole reason why I'm here at Chelsea. You know, such subtle statements are prevalent in our culture. The culture where we are obsessed with my truth. What is best for me? My perspective. My events analysis. My interpretation of a scenario. My truth. Now, the term our truth or my truth historically is known as Subjective truth. Subjective truth is basically this, that that item, the truth of that item is particularly 
defined by my feelings, my experiences, perspectives, and interpretation. It's subjective to those things. Now, in the right setting, subjective truth is good and wholesome, and we need it. So think about marriage, for example. That every woman in this room who's married should be able to say the following subjective truth statement. (laughs) I'll keep it, you know, PG. My husband is so handsome. Amen. Particularly Carlos this morning. Have you seen the fade? And charming. So funny. In fact, he's the funniest man I've ever met. He's so emotionally, no one could be more emotionally connected to me than my husband. You see, subjective truth is helpful. We should all have the most attractive partners. And our definitions of beauty should change as our partners change. So when we're 20 and our partner looks a certain way, that's our definition of beauty. But when we're 50, 60, 70, it should change. Because beauty should change as we change, because it's a subjective truth. When you're 50 years old as a married man, you shouldn't be attracted to 20-year-old women. You should be attracted to your wife. Who, and well, unless she's a 20-year-old woman that you've been married to, of course. <laughs> Marriage course, Wednesday nights. <laughs> Tuesdays. Yeah. So you need subjective truth. We also need objective truth. What if each doctor or surgeon prescribed the idea of subjective truth to medicine? Let's say you had a gallbladder issue this morning. Your gallbladder sits right on the top right of your tummy, a little pouch organ. You have two options, and you decide, I'm, I, need some, I need a surgery, so I'm going I'm to pick two hospitals, and I'm going to discern which hospitals are going to remove my gallbladder. You turn up at Hospital A in the countryside, Hospital A follows an objective truth process, and they say, we can help you. There's two processes we usually follow. A laparoscopic cholecystectomy. We'll do several minor cuts uh, into your abdomen. We'll use some fine instruments, and we'll pull out the gallbladder. But if that doesn't work, we'll go for an open cholecystectomy. We'll do a single larger incision into your tummy, and we'll remove your gallbladder. Like, okay, it's a good start. Then you head off to Hospital B, which subscribes to an advanced, progressive, my subjective uh, approach to medicine. Following several inspirational moments earlier in the month, the doctor looks at you and says, you know what we're going to try this week? We're going to go through your neck. We're going to make an incision just below your jaw. We're going to throw in some fishing gut with a hook, and we're just going to reel it out of there. Okay? How would you feel leaving progressive Hospital B? Or which hospital would you choose? Now, of course, I'm using hyperbole here to make a point. An objective truth is a truth which stands up to scrutiny despite, despite personal bias, feelings, experiences, perspectives, or emotions. The truth is, you may have had a bad parental experience as a child. It is subjectively true that your particular parent was unkind and lacked compassion. But it is not objectively true that all parents are cold and lacking empathy. Now, let's be clear. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying something both subjective and objective. He is saying, my reality for you is that I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
But he's also saying something objective for all humanity, and this is important, whether you believe it or not. Because truth is true, whether it's not activated by someone's belief. My, my objective truth for you is that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What an extraordinary claim. Like a sick patient wanting to see an objective doctor to bring about healing. So a sick society should go and see the great physician to bring about a salvation injury. C.S. Lewis's comments are really helpful here. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is this. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral subjective teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not be a great subjective moral teacher alone. He would either be a lunatic. Now you must make your choice. This man is and was the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus claims to be the only way to the Father. That his death, his burial, his resurrection has made a way. Now, we all long for objective truth. Because when we experience subjective truth time after time, it's like looking through a window. You see, subjective truth is like a window. And if everything is subjective, then if everything is a window, there's nothing to see. Objective truth is like a mountain behind the window, which we can fix our gaze upon. And if we have nothing to hold on to, then we have nothing. The heart longs for objective truth. Do you believe that Jesus is the truth? Jesus is also the life. Now, more is Jesus. I think Jesus' claim here is both life before death and life after death. I don't think the Christian is to, you know, you have that joke, don't you, in kind of church. You can always tell the mature Christian because the joy is deep inside, but it never makes it to their face. I believe the Christian should have life before death and life after death. I think Jesus says that here. Life before death. Let's say you are a parent and you have two children, child one and child two. And you send them both off to school, but you do them in profoundly different ways. Child one, you, you start the day with child one and you say to child one, at the beginning of the day, I'm going to instruct you that by the end of the day, I would like you to bring everything that you have done, all of your work from school. I would like to tell you to tell me about all of your actions and your behaviors. I would like you to show me what you've accomplished. And I would like you to bring it home with you. Once you bring it home with you, we're going to go through it together. And depending on the outcome and the quality of your work, I will discern whether I will give you my approval. I will discern whether I will be proud of you. So child one scurries off out of the home. 
and they start thinking about this idea that they've got to go and earn their approval of their parent. This intense desire to be approved of that sits in the heart of the child starts to marinate over their heart and they start to function out of a sense of uncertainty and lack of approval. Throughout the day, the child is constantly aware that if they draw outside the lines, if they do not capitalize a letter, then disapproval might follow later in the day. During the day, the child says to feel wobbly. I feel wobbly. They have butterflies in their stomach. They start dropping things because they feel a bit stressed. But they're such a child, they don't really understand it. A parent or teacher looks at them and says, it looks like they're walking on eggshells. The child can't really communicate their inner feelings. They start to feel restless and irritable. They're not quite sure why. And they find themselves getting really angry really quickly. And out of this idea, or out of this uncertainty of not feeling approved, they try and gain control in the classroom. They start bossing other children around. Start telling them what to do. That gives them a bit of momentary relief from feeling insecure. You see, this child goes about their day, but they can't really enjoy it because they are desperately unsure whether they will be approved of later in the day. The uncertainty is robbing the child of life. The uncertainty is robbing the child of rest. So the child can't really enjoy their experiences because they cannot fully rest. Why? Because the child is living life or at school not knowing whether they're hitting the mark. Let's say you send child number two to school. Now, child number two goes to exactly the same class as child number one. You drop them off at the same time. They have the same friendship groups. You pick them up at the same time. But to child number two, you look to them. You get down on their level. And you bend your knees. What you do is, you know, bend your knees. You look at the child in the eye and you say, I love you. Prove of you. Really, there's nothing you can do today that's going to make me feel more proud of you. Regardless of anything that happens, I cannot think any more of you. I love you so much, child. Go to school, and what I'd like you to bring to mum and dad when you come home today is this. Bring your work, not because we're going to discern whether I approve of you, we were going to go through it together because I want to hear about the stories. I want to see what you've done. Yes, there may be moments where you didn't act in a way that the family would have wanted you to act. We'll discipline you, but because we love you and we care for you. Child two goes off to school. Feeling rested inside. Feeling secure inside. And so they join the same activities as child number one. They muck around with the same kids. Yet there's a profound difference. One of the children is living life to the full. One isn't. Why? Because like the lyrics sung by Lebo M in The Lion King, he lives in you. He lives in me. He watches over everything we see. Into the water, into the truth, 
in your reflection lives in you. Words taken out of John chapter 14. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us, Jesus answered. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything, Philip, in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth, also known as the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this, church. Do you want to live life like child number two? The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. Why? For he lives with you and will be in you. Do you want life before death? You will only get that when you have an eternal sense of rest, approval, where you're not trying to live this Sunday, the 8th of October, to justify your position on planet Earth, but knowing that it has been eternally justified by the Holy Spirit living in you. In the eyes of God, you are all child number two. Don't try to live life like child number one. But there's also life after death, because, my friend, you have an eternal room prepared. A Christian believes that death is just a comma. It's not a complete stop. Jesus will return as he promised to deliver you and us from our ailments and our injuries and our troubles. Because like the disciples, we all have troubles. But like the disciples, we also have a room prepared. And like the disciples, we have the offer of Jesus. Jesus is your vehicle. He is your driver. He is your fuel. He is your pickup. Jesus is your stairway. He is your ladder. He is your train. He's your airplane. Jesus is your way home. So, can we say, as Fanny Crosby says this, all the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask besides? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We sense your Holy Spirit in the room just reminding us of your love. Jesus, you are the way. You've macheted a way back to the Father. The rainforest of sin is now open, and there is a pathway for us to follow. You are the truth. You are the mountain in which we can gaze upon and know safety and security for eternity. You're also the life. You're the life before death that treats us like child number two. 
You crouch down this morning, you bend your knee, you look at us in the eye, and you tell us you love us, that you approve of us. That whatever sin that we have committed, whatever thought that we've had, whatever shame that we carry, that in your eyes, that does not dissolve your love. It only enhances it. Lord, we want to thank you that we are made in your image, and we want to respond by worshiping this morning that we either already know or we can know the way, the truth, and the life.